You are listening to the first episode of Confect Corner. Confect Corner is brought to you in association with Edelweiss. A woman I design for is a woman who knows her own mind. She's very individual in the way that she makes choices and not just in fashion. I'm not interested in producing many pieces of one design. I'm always interested in the person who is going to wear it. Every time I've left there, I've been kind of walking on air and thinking for a few days. If that's not a perfect welcome, I don't know what is. <laughs> Behind those Italian cars were like holes with hot, bubbly, smelling water. <laughs> and all the Italians sitting in it. And I thought, no, I don't go there. <laughs> Then I tried and I must say it was just heaven. For those of you who haven't seen the glossy pages of our new magazine on newsstands, I should start by introducing Confect. The makers of Monocle have often pondered what the magazine's sister might look and sound like, and we took the decision to launch a new quarterly magazine at the end of last year. Edited between London and Zurich, Confect is a positive, progressive title inspired by the chic, understated women we know in the Swiss mountains and cities like Vienna and Berlin. Those who value a swim in a cold lake or a hike across a breezy field as much as a stint in a grand hotel. In many ways, Confect hopes to redefine what a women's magazine can be. While we're covering fashion, food, retail and sumptuous interiors, there's also a serious commitment to viticulture, long searching reportage and smart essays. Our pages are active, adventurous and a celebration of strong, brilliant, resilient figures, from hoteliers to designers. And we seek to do all of this with the same sense of joy you'd find at the best party. Which is why it's important to launch this podcast, Confect Corner. I'm Sophie Grove, editor of Confect and your host for this series. Well, here we are for the first episode of Confect Corner. Each month, I'll be joined by Gillian Tobias here in London and Confect style director Marcella Palak in our Zurich studio. And they're both here now. Welcome, Gillian. Hi, Sophie. Nice to be here in studio with you. And Marcella, hi. Hello from Zurich. Hi, Sophie. Hi, it's a virtual roundtable. <laughs> we wish you were here. So every episode, we're going to start by each discussing something that has caught our eye or piqued our interest recently, a sort of show and tell. Um, Marcella, you've just got back from Paris. Yes, I just uh, yesterday night came back from Paris where I met uh, Vincent Riba, the creator of Rue de Verneuil Bags, which uh, I know since quite a while, which I follow and which I absolutely love. These joyful, colorful bags of excellent material, so I met Vincent, of course, outside early in the morning in the Palais Royal Gardens. It was quite rainy and gray and cold, but we met with a cup of coffee in hands and had a very nice talk. Actually, Palais Royal is for me a location. I love it. It completely doesn't depend from the weather. It's just for me a beautiful uh, location in Paris. I was really happy to hear, and it was a wonderful surprise to hear from Vincent that uh, Rue de Verneuil is uh, soon to open a little store in the galleries of uh, Palais Royal. 
Oh, because, wow. Yeah, so it was such a nice match, you know. So oh, I envy very that. Happy I meet. envy that, Marcella. I love the idea of you two, kind of this rendezvous. Um, sort of, it's a a very filmage-like. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like. <laughs> With the red carnation in the newspaper. <laughs> I know, exactly. And and the masks, probably, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. But yes. um, no, it's a, a place I, I used to go to in mm. all seasons, too, and so beautiful in summer. Gillian, what's sort of caught your eye this week in London? Well, mine's a bit closer to home and it's in my little neighbourhood, but it's this kind of wonderful, feel-good, positive entrepreneurial story where, you know, we're used to seeing, sadly, so many shop fronts empty, closed down, boarded up. And I turned the corner one day and I saw a retro ice cream parlour. A bit surprising in winter to have an ice cream parlour. But It's really a story of an actress who, in March, suddenly had all her jobs cancelled, all the rehearsals cancelled. And she realised she needed to, A, have an income, but also find another way to work and to live. And she created this ice cream parlour where all her fellow freelancers in the theatre industry partake designing the interiors, creating the ice creams, doing the logo and the signs. And it's this wonderful community spirit, something that we could all do and think if we didn't have our day jobs, what kind of little retail shop would we have? And I decided I was going to have a flower shop. (laughs) Marcella, what would you have? I would have probably a little hot dog. Oh, tasty. (laughs) Uh, Like a luxury little hot dog bar. Oh, what a dream. I think I might just dispense some lovely apero, just a kind of little glass of something at the right hour. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But personally, I've just uh, got a lovely little package in the post from a gorgeous brand, actually, from Cologne, who have set up at the same time as Confect, a magazine. It's quite interesting because so many fashion brands are looking for new ways to kind of communicate now. They can't do a show or a shop. And this is a sort of journal. And I was just flicking through and I saw that there's a brilliant essay about Bruno Taut, who's this utopian German architect that was working in the Weimar Republic. And I'm really interested in him. And they've done a whole knitwear range inspired by this guy. So I felt... What does that look like, Sophie? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's very sort of simple very sort of interwar, those kind of de steel colours, blue, yellow, red. And you can buy a little kind of gilet knitted in cologne that's inspired by, you know, this utopian architect from 1930s Berlin. I was thinking, yes, <laughs> someone's thought of it. It's just lovely to see something curious, something a bit wacky curious, and good. something really tangible that you can sort of immerse yourself in. And fashion too, it's just, I think that... In a way, it's been so tough for fashion brands looking for ways to express themselves, but some of them have done such beautiful things with film, with Mm. print and just other mediums that in a way you get such a wonderful insight. And I think it has been a seismic shift. I mean, I think the fashion industry and the way the fashion industry is showing their collections is never going to be the same. And they're going to channel the same huge budgets that they used to do by putting on vast shows into things much more creative and I think that benefits everyone the consumer and the creators Marcella in a way I mean we miss the shows certainly with Confet but then you get this wonderful creative world presented to you at home yeah of course now movies are the big thing and I think like designers are getting better and better in in creating stories and finding the right movie directors to present beautiful movies, showing their creations, their fashion 
If anyone hasn't yet seen the new Dior film, I urge them to. It's inspired by tarot cards and it sort of really harks back to Christian Dior's fascination with clairvoyance, you know, before he did his shows and before he worked. But it is beautifully crafted and really showcases the clothes so expressively. Incredible uh, sort of democratisation of the shows in a way. I mean, this exclusive event that you couldn't see and now everyone has an insight this moment of display and... Even though we miss them, there are some benefits Mm. too. Well, speaking of clothes design, I think now might be a good time to bring in our first guest today. Anyone who's read the first issue of Confect would have seen our interview with the designer Paula Gabase about how she likes to head to the mountains for a bit of perspective. Her award-winning unisex label Gabase makes everything from fine jewellery to a range of knitwear called skins. To tell us more about how her high-altitude hobby influences her work, she joins us now down the line from her home in London. Paula, wonderful to speak to you. I think a lot of us have um, seen the amazing shots of you at the top of a glacier, looking incredibly brave. It's wonderful also to talk about the kind of passion and the influence that climbing and, and sort of mountaineering has had on you and your career and your decision-making. But can you just tell me a bit about how it all started? It all started very young because I come from quite a varied background. So my mom's German and my father's Italian, but I was born in Brazil, in southern Brazil. And my dad worked for the UN, so he moved around a lot through obviously Brazil, then the States, and then finally in Switzerland. So I guess my outdoorsiness, I think it's probably always been there and it's always been somewhat of a grounding force for me personally but you know the mountains really only came to my into my life when we moved to Switzerland when I was nine or ten so as far as you know skiing and mountaineering goes I'm quite a late bloomer you know I wasn't on skis before I could walk but the mountains definitely became more and more important and then I suppose I lost a bit track of them when I moved to London you know life got in the way Uh, went from college to working to setting up a brand and lost a little bit sight of that side of me uh, until 2016 when I was questioning a lot of I suppose my work and also uh, the world and where we were headed with the Brexit vote and something in me just made me want to stop and go back to the mountains and that's when I took up climbing again and it became an even more important force. And the piece is is interesting because it talks about how well the sublime kind of connection with nature has been really important for you but also quite instrumental in your decision making as a designer and kind of moments that you had when you reconnected with nature sort of made you reassess things I think you know if you've been working in fashion for enough years especially now and if you if you're someone who like I was was doing shows every six months with you know nine collections a year plus the consultancy that I was doing so let's say that I was designing um, probably roughly around 12 collections a year I think for me it came to a point where I felt like it was too much and I couldn't really see how I was able to digest my own work in order to move forward. And the people that were interacting with my work, I couldn't really see how they would 
be able to digest my work either. And I didn't feel particularly fulfilled at putting out things that had a timeline. And in some ways, it's quite exhilarating to have that looming deadline of a show because you know that whatever happens, you're going to have to put something out there. But in other ways, I think even though people around me were praising what I was doing, I felt like what I was putting out there was maybe, you know, 60% of what I would consider good. I just felt like I was compromising. And so stepping away from that and being in the mountain where there is this permanence and it's always going to be there in that way and climbing and taking your time and not being able to compromise because actually the only way to get to the top is to put one foot in front of the other and have patience. I think that translated to me realizing that I wasn't feeling particularly fulfilled with, you know, with the rhythm of my industry. And I think that definitely had a catalyst moment for me to step away from the seasonal structure in my work and to really take time to reconsider what it is that I wanted to make, whether I wanted to make anything at all, and if I was going to make something, how that would come about, in what ways. And but Paula, it's interesting that you, with Gobes, you have this incredible model, really, that's very dexterous, but in some cases bespoke. But I'm very intrigued by the skins range, which feel somehow inspired by the mountains, this incredible fine knitwear that has this kind of wonderful sense of being this sort of, yeah, second skin, sort of malleable, but kind of super useful and sporty. Did that come from your 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 trekking, um, sort of mountaineering life too? Or, or does that have another story? I guess I was spending a lot of time in, you know, sportswear. And there's a real functionality to that. And design really comes second. Even, you know, brands that are doing sportswear that are supposedly designing it. You know, they're, the garments aren't, you know, beautiful, they're functional, but they're very lightweight, they're engineered, you know, they're not constructed. And so that was quite inspiring in terms of, yes, we think about functionalities, but really we're thinking aesthetics. But then all I was wearing was very, you know, close fitting, let's say, second skin garments that provided a you know, warmth or coolness, quick drying, and, you know, in some ways, most of proper outerwear nowadays is about layering. There's systems of functionality. So you have your base layer, then you add on maybe either a merino layer or a fleece, then you have your shell. And so this idea of putting on and taking off as you progress through your space, through the mountain, you know, how could I adapt that to the city? But also, I guess, in complete contrast, I was just craving a new femininity. My work has always been, you know, most people would call it quite androgynous. And because I trained on Savile Row in menswear, there's always been a very strong sense of tailoring and masculinity. But personally, you know, as a woman growing up, felt like I had spent all this time in sportswear in sweats but I was just craving to be dressed up again but to have the comfort and the functionality of what I was wearing up a mountain so that's how skins came about this idea of these diaphanous very very fine layers that were engineered like sportswear 
also you can throw i don't know five pieces of skins in the bottom of a bag throw everything on top travel take a train take a plane you know and then arrive wherever you're headed and you want to go out to dinner and you can just pull them out of your bag and put them on and go and then forget about them i've always loved the idea that you know good design or good fashion design for me at least is when you put something on and you feel great but then you forget about it for the rest of the night because ultimately at least for me fashion is about framing the person rather than trying to overwhelm them and uh hopefully skins does that to an extent i think what i found um immediately intriguing in the article at surface value is really the juxtaposition between fashion designer and mountain climber it's really breaking the mold and i'm wondering when you're designing your fashion when you're designing your clothes the women you design for are they mold breakers who who do you design for I think the woman I've I designed for is a woman who knows her own mind who uh is not you know trend led she doesn't look at an ad in a magazine and thinks oh yes I must look like that she makes her own decisions she's very individual in the way that she makes choices and not just in fashion I suppose she's well read and I'm thinking about women that are around me that she's curious And you know, I suppose I design for women that are around me and that I'm curious of getting to know and also I'm designed for women that if I was to sit in a room with them that they would question me and we would challenge each other. I suppose that if I'm able to somehow something that I design can fit into moments in their life, intimate moments even and moments that they remember, I think that's really what I'm always aiming for. as designers we have a real responsibility to question what we're producing and for whom and how that's going to live not just for the next season but you know for the next 50 years well paula it was a pleasure to speak to you thank you for joining us on confect corner coming up we'll be learning about the art of scent when hosting a dinner party We'll hear from our photographer in Egypt who shot issue 1's Coptic Christmas story and we'll be celebrating the sanctuary of the bathroom. So, we've just heard from the wonderful Paula Gabes, a real star on the rise in the fashion industry, with a very independent outlook and a designer who certainly ascribes to the values of slow fashion, which brings us rather nicely onto our second topic, craft. Here at Confect, we're very interested in the longevity of clothes and the traditions of manufacturing something beautiful. There were so many amazing examples of women supporting the craft industry in our first issue. Marcella, perhaps you can tell us about some of them. Oh, there are really many of them. So, first of all, probably there is the Swiss and beautiful Claudia Bertini with her timeless collections and especially beautiful coats made from amazing North Italian fabrics. It's very important to her to choose the right fabric for the right design and you have to touch and feel it and then you will understand but before probably read uh, the question and answers in the interview in Confect but then there is also Guia Marini and Carmen D'Apollonio from her brand Ecochus they do kind of yarn crochets of uh, hand painted silk foulards unique pieces just amazing 
Or then you also find a ceramic artist called Barbara Köberle in our first issue. I love her ceramics and porcelain because it's always something about humor in it. You know, you find like a plate with a giant lip on it or a vase that is kind of face and it's just beautiful, unique pieces. It's an amazing piece um, from the mountains of South Tyrol where um, Daphne Azar was essentially sort of going from one workshop to another, meeting these amazing craftsmen and women who just had one loom or one beautiful um, sort of embroidery at workshop that's been there for hundreds of years. It's one of my favorite pieces. Rear is really amazing. And the special thing is, if I'm talking to young designers or people with pop-up stores, it's somehow they know it all and they're all uh, completely amazed by this, this Rear brand. So it's not only Confect, it's really the the uh, upcoming fashion scene who love this brand. Well, to talk some more about this, we have the designer Kazu Hogler. Kazu is a Swiss-Japanese designer whose kimono is in fact a cover star for the first issue of Confect. Marcella, what was it about Kazu's designs that made you want to put them on the front cover of Confect? Hmm. Actually, I know Kazu for a long time and I'm impressed by her strong and independent and very, very aesthetic style, melting two cultures in a unique and very light-footed way. So we've paired a short kimono with the, with the white trousers, and I think this, this looks, looks very, very modern and chic. It does, indeed. Well, let's hear from Kazu Hugler about her brand, why kimonos are a model for sustainable fashion, and her thoughts on respecting a classic design while bringing it into the 21st century. I founded my brand Akazu almost 19 years ago. I was living back and forth between Tokyo and Zurich. My mother comes from Japan, my father from Switzerland. And my aim was to unify my both cultural background and hometown um, into fashion and transforming my background into textile creations. Kimono is created from one roll of fabric some 12 meters long and 38 centimeters wide. And this roll is cut crosswise to make four panels, which are then sewn together along the selfage. All of the fabric from the roll, a single roll, is used, so nothing is wasted. My atelier in Zurich specializes in creating new clothes using panels regained from vintage kimonos. I'm not interested into producing many pieces of one design. I'm always interested into the person who is going to wear it, with her history, with her lifestyle. And since Zurich is quite small, it's important to have an individual piece which is unique. That's why my favorite way of working is in my studio to consult, to talk to my customer and consulting them and developing, for example, a town collection creation which is made of unique one-off piece kimono. So my customer can select her own kimono and we are going to unstitch it. And sometimes we drape the panels on herself and we together develop a unique design. And each time it's a wonderful moment to see what we developed together, me and the customer, 
on her body, draping, talking, and that's actually the most wonderful part of my work. Maybe one misunderstanding is that kimonos are not a robe to wear at home. I mean, if you wear a kimono traditionally, the way I learned how to wear a kimono is very complicated. You have to start wearing the tabi, the socks first, and then everything starts there on the kimono, so many ties. But that's the reason why my generation of women in Japan stopped wearing kimono. If you are filled with so many rules, how to wear it and how to behave yourself. The joy is gone. And uh, my friends, they rather spend money on a Chanel suit instead of uh, making a kimono for $20,000. This is the reason why I encourage people just to wear and style their own way. We are all free. This is also the respect, as long as you, you maintain the respect towards the garment. And you have this attitude, I think everyone is free. That was the Swiss-Japanese designer Kazu Hugler, whose kimono you can see on the front cover of Confect Issue 1. Still to come, a Coptic Christmas, Viennese cakes and a soak in the tub. Edelweiss is Switzerland's leading premium leisure carrier with an impressive route portfolio to match. So whether you're missing those Mykonos skies or Ibiza nights, why not head there via Zurich? You'll receive the warmest of welcomes and an impeccable in-flight experience. Discover your dream destination, whether you're gearing up for the Greek islands or mulling the Maldives, craving a hit of Havana or longing for Cancun. Head to flyedelweiss.com for direct flights from Zurich to over 70 destinations, including more than 30 around the Mediterranean. With Edelweiss, you'll discover the most beautiful side of every destination. In each episode of Confect Corner, we'll be meeting someone who has brought a story to life on the pages of the magazine. This month, we're going to meet the photographer Roger Annie. Annie is based in Egypt, and for Confect this month, we gave him the task of finding a family in Alexandria's small Coptic community who would share their Christmas with him. During Alexandria's glittering heyday as a social and cultural hub of the Mediterranean, this community was renowned for their big Christmas celebrations. In the magazine, we meet the Yazbek family, whose matriarch talks about those heydays and how their festive spirit remains strong. Roger Annie tells us about how he found the Yazbeks and about some of the wonderful photographs he took from noisy Alexandria. When they contacted me in the magazine in Comfort, they were asking, oh, we want to show how Coptic are celebrating Coptic Christmas in Egypt, specifically in Alexandria in an old house and big family. So I started to ask around and see who can help. Nobody answered and uh, whenever uh, somebody answers, it's not possible or people just don't have time. Yeah, we kept searching, searching, searching and I recommended my friend Amira to be the writer uh, for the story and we started searching together and then we said, okay, 
this is it. We don't, no more phone calls. We're just gonna go to Alexandria and we start just knocking on the doors of the people we know or we might know or we know through other people. And we did. And then we found a family who agrees, but we are still waiting for the agreement of the grandmother because she's so strict and she's so old and it's in her house. We got her approval the night before we are supposed to shoot. The moment I entered, I stepped in the house. I said, wow, this is even more than what I dreamed of. The grandmother itself and what she wears. Uh, they even prepared the, the Christmas tree and the, the walls, the, the building itself, uh, the wallpaper, the light in the house, in each room. So it was, uh, it was really fantastic once I stood in and, and I was, I was so uh, enthusiastic that I said hi to the people and then I started like roaming in the rooms and just searching, oh, look at this, look at this, oh wow, wow, wow. So yeah, this was, uh, this was a great moment. Actually, I, I, I still remember it once I stepped in the house. It's a moment that I didn't imagine it would be the same like in my head or even more. I have a favorite group of photos which was taken on the on the wallpaper of uh, of the bedroom of the grandmother with the picture of uh, Jesus on it and I'm so in love with the background and especially this portrait of the grandmother alone. The lady is so beautiful, her look, her clothes, her, the light on her face, I love it. Yeah, the one with the, the mother and the and the daughter together on the bed. I, I like it because it's showing the two generations are, are sharing their memories in this place. And you see this background of the wallpaper as a dreamy one. And, and then you have the information of the, uh, the, the picture with Jesus and, and Virgin Mary telling you some more information about the family and then you have the clothes of the lady also telling you who she is. She's 90 something, but she still have this beautiful spirit, cheerful spirit and very strong. And she have her daughter next to her. Both of them are strong in a dreamy way. When it comes to news, you just keep shooting. And sometimes you just don't have that much time to digest what you're shooting because it's a moment and you have to take it. When it comes to documentary or reportage like this, sometimes you go to a place, but it, this place, it doesn't open fully to you, whether it's the place itself or the people in it. So you just need to wait and be patient and start to observe instead of taking, taking pictures. Like in this story, I didn't take my camera out till two hours. I, uh, I started first to mingle with the people, talk, try to find a common ground uh, where we can talk and blabber. And then you start taking your camera out and slowly, slowly you start to take pictures. I definitely love to explore new lives and new places. This is like one of the best things about my job and what makes me really grateful and thankful for it that it can take me every day to a totally different life. Sometimes very up, sometimes very down, 
sometimes something that I would never know about, sometimes something that I really know about, but I, I didn't look, it, look at it that way till I got an assignment where I have to focus. That's why I actually I really love the job. With photography, you can observe, you can meditate, you can take pictures. That was Roger Annie who photographed the story Coptic Christmas in issue one of Convict, which you can read now. The Azvecs featured in that story know all about what it means to be a good host, and our next story is about someone who knows just how the right scent can create a sense of welcome. Cicel Tolas is a Norwegian artist and researcher based in Berlin. In the latest issue of Confect, our reporter Kimberly Bradley heads to her home for an olfactory dining experience. Kim will join me in just a moment to tell us what that was like, but first, here's Cicel Tolas to remind us why smell is such a powerful sense. Every breath you do, you inhale smell molecules and all this information flooding into our system, you know, provide a lot of information we don't see. Nevertheless, this information make us make decisions and these decisions are important for survival. So all this information in the air we breathe makes sense only when it hits down deep down in your brain, triggering memory and emotion. And the quickest processing in the brain happens through smelling. And all this information gets stored in our subconsciously forever. And, and we only take use of maximum 15 to 20% out of it. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's massive amount of information that just hanging, laying down there and just wait to be used properly. And the smell, the topic of smell and smelling has not necessarily been neglected. You know, marketing took over with science left once upon a time. But I think now we are more concerned about that this topic and the sense of smell is important part of, of being a human being and being a healthy human being. And now I'm joined by Kimberly Bradley, who reported this piece. We're calling it a perfect welcome, Kimberly. But actually, this story is really about an exuberant host. I'm quoting your piece, but she says, I'm good at not making things dull at the very end. And it does <laughs> seem like it's every, anything but dull. It, this is very true. If you go to her house, and to be honest, I've been to her house for dinner a few times, you're immediately met with this smell. Uh, she's a smell artist, so it would make sense with her lab. Her lab studio is within a very, very large apartment that you'd catch a whiff of something. And some of her experiment it's, un, it, it's actually really indefinable. It's not necessarily a perfumey smell, but it's a very interesting smell. And then she's got this visual cornucopia of furniture and artworks and research and posters and herself. I mean, she's wonderfully bubbly and talks a lot and has interesting things to say and is always very glamorous. I mean, she's known around Berlin for being very glamorous. But I think that she certainly can cook. I mean, she cooked you the most amazing monkfish. She says she likes to look the fish in the <laughs> eye, which I love. She didn't do that in front of us. She told us that she uh, had done that 
at KDV, which is one of the, it's a big traditional department store in Berlin, which on the upper floors has this incredible food department that's world renowned. And the guys who sell the fish apparently know her pretty well and she has to always look the fish in the eye and she just told us that story. But what I found really fun, and this has happened every time I've been there, is you kind of follow her in and out of the kitchen a little bit. Like it's a very casual atmosphere, at least in the smaller groups I've been in. You can chat with her while she's cooking. She's very, it's almost as if she's, I'm wondering if she's like this when she's working with her fragrances. I mean, she's an expert in the way she moves her hands and how she adds ingredients. She did tell me she cooked for her younger siblings since she was maybe 10 years old, I think, or very young age. And you can see that. She's an expert and she moves briskly and she's a lot of fun <laughs> in the kitchen. Definitely. I mean, it feels like Confect, one of our sort of missions in a way, is to try and decode hosting. What is a good host? And it feels that Cicel is, you know, there's an alchemy to what she's doing, the amazing guests, the conversation, but then also the scent. She's really creating this world where you're stimulated, not just through food, but through other senses. Yeah. Uh, well, like I mentioned, the visual. In the various rooms where guests are, I've actually never seen the more private spaces of the apartment. There are collections of Scandinavian furniture, some of which has come from her grandmother, but it's a lot of the design icons of mid-century Scandinavian furniture is there. Furry textures and colors. She's got an incredible vase collection from, mostly from Venice, like Murano glass, but lots of very crazy different ones. The mix of people is always interesting. It can be, she knows a lot of really amazing women in Berlin from different countries and from different fields. And that in Berlin is, I find quite unusual because the city kind of separates into its art world bubble or its tech bubble, but she doesn't do this. She's very transdisciplinary in her work, but also very transdisciplinary in how she curates her guests. I get bubbly might be the wrong word. She's so enthusiastic about a multitude of different topics that conversation never lulls. I mean, it doesn't anyway because of the people that show up, but she's very good at choreographing conversation. And then when it comes to the food, what I found super interesting, this is also in the pieces, that she doesn't like garlic. She cannot sleep when she eats garlic. She doesn't like how it overpowers flavor or, or the olfactory. So what she did with our monkfish, but also just everything, she uses a lot of lemon or other flavor givers that are far more creative than the stuff I use at home, which is way too much garlic. <laughs> so everything is a bit of a, yeah, alchemy is a really good word and it exists on all levels. It's interesting that her confidence and her enthusiasm sort of create this wonderful, and it's almost performative, but then very generous and just very upbeat. And I think that is, we're calling this a perfect welcome, which can sound a little bit kind of <laughs> something in the realms of housewifery, but actually what we're talking about is a spirit. Every time I've left there, I've been kind of walking on air um, and thinking for a few days. If that's not a perfect welcome, I don't know what is. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Kimberly. That's fascinating. Thank you. All this talk of dinner has got us hungry. 
So where better to indulge our sweet tooth than Austria? Indeed, Sophie. Vienna's cake culture goes back centuries and reflects its multicultural roots. The recipes came from all over the former Austro-Hungarian Empire, Hungary, Moravia, Italy, even Romania. All these influences combined to make Vienna's confectionery some of the best in the world, attracting tourists and locals alike. But some pastry chefs are worried that the city's desserts are too stuck in the past and want to shake things up a bit. A reporter, Alexei Korolyov, meets one of them. Vienna is the self-appointed world capital of cake. You've got your Zachertorte, your Apple Strudel, your Esterhazy cake. Take your pick. Almost every place that sells food will also have cake, to say nothing of dedicated Konditoreien, like Demel in the historic first district, or Aida, which runs 12 branches across the city. Indeed, torten, pastries and cakes are a staple of Viennese life. But the trouble with these traditional Melchbeisen is that they may be too traditional. I think they are mostly uh, done in a way like they did it a hundred years ago, which is fine, but uh, today it doesn't really make sense to still use these old recipes. For one, they are way too sweet. And I think most people actually don't like to eat them anymore because they are very heavy and very sweet. Alexandra Marischka is one of a new breed of Austrian pastry chefs that want to play by their own rules. But there's one snag. I think if a Sachertorte is done well, it's actually a really great cake. Mm. Because I think dark chocolate and apricot goes very well together and I think it's an, actually an interesting combination. I already have in mind like how to play with the recipe so it will be better. Can you tell me? Or is this...? That's actually a secret. (laughs) But of course it will be a lot less uh, sugar. I will do a different kind of of glaze, which will actually make it not a Sachertorte anymore, because there's like the Codex in Vienna, and some of the most iconic pastries are like, they have to be made in a certain way, and like the glazing of the Sachertorte is one of them, so you can't really mess with it. The Codex Alimentarius Austricus is a set of rules and standards regulating the country's food industry. Established in 1891, it served as a model for a Europe-wide codex and is still in use today. Ironically, Vienna's famous Hotel Zacher, the home of the eponymous cake, was once found in violation of it for adulterating its butter with margarine. It ended up having to pay a hefty fine. But how could anyone find out? That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe somebody talked. Yeah. <laughs> Marischka did her training in Paris. Because there's no uh, pastry school in Vienna. And so, in her patisserie in Vienna's second district, she likes to mix it up. So would this be uh, a good example? This is a perfect example for what I do. It's like a simple tart with almond cream that is uh, like baked with the, with the tart. Uh, it's an Italian recipe. It's called uh, francipane. And it's made with uh, almond flour. We put uh, fruit on top of whatever is in season. And right now it's with uh, blood orange and also the zest of it. Mm. It's so really not, not particularly Viennese, is it? It isn't, no. So uh, we kind of do this weird mixture of uh, using local ingredients and having like this Parisian aesthetic, I think. Mm. 
Marishka also studied fine arts and briefly worked in fashion. And that shows. In fact, one review called her creations sculptures, made with lavish finesse and sophistication. These are usually arranged into collections. So that's the newest. This is the newest collection? Mm-hmm. Um, this one, actually, Chloe Potter, who, who made the pictures. I love her style so much because it's so mysterious and eerie yeah. and uh, also morbid at times, which I love. And I always wanted to do like those kind of pastries that are like kind of dark and, yeah. and mysterious. For one of her upcoming collections, Marischka plans to completely reimagine Austrian cakes. She'll need to be wary of the codex, but she's ready to risk it, as long as this means she'll be making a difference. Yeah, that's what used to be cool, but it's not anymore. And I really, I think uh, you have to completely take apart the recipes and try to do it in a new way. We'll end each episode of Confect Corner with a final thought. And this month we turn to the British writer Lou Stoppard, whose most recent book is called Pools. Lounging, diving, floating, dreaming, picturing life at the swimming pool. Sticking to this aquatic theme, for Confect, Stoppard has written this, Ode to a Bath. The work of art that I most identify with is Wayne Thiebaud's 1965 painting, Woman in Tub. In some ways, it's more about the tub than the woman. The bulk of the canvas is given over to the clean, straight lines of the bath slides. Thiebaud was, after all, interested in a certain stylistic purity in colour and form, hence why he only turned to figurative painting after years spent mastering the banal familiarity of supposed treats such as ice creams, cakes and pinball machines. The woman's body is invisible. We only see her neck and head, which lolls back against the top of the tub. A long, hard day, a moment's quiet. Uh, what's the meaning of it all? Her eyes look forward, but are tilted up and seem unfocused. Or maybe I imagine them to be, based on my own bath time meditations, my own hours spent looking at, but not really taking in, the ceiling. Bathing women litter art history, but Thibault's painting to me is the greatest example of the sensation of bathing of relaxing, of sinking, of dissolving, of reappearing, of the many things one does. It's the genius of the woman's expression, somewhere between peaceful and stoic, hopeful and resigned. And it's the light, that bathroom light, the coldness, the clarity, something harsh yet oddly intimate, modern yet just so nostalgic, a conduit to past visits to hotels, bad rentals, school cubicles, hospitals. I spent a particularly large amount of 2020 in repose, channeling Tibbold's woman in the tub. I whiled away lockdown days watching bubbles disintegrate around my thighs, or pushing my breasts upwards out of the water like two islands, the water lapping at their shores in neat surrounding circles. I particularly liked lifting my legs up and out and pressing my feet against the cold, hard, flat tiles above the bath. And I spent a lot of time thinking about death, about life, about all of it, the past indiscretions, the hopes for the future, the soup to be made for dinner. The bathroom is the perfect place for one's thoughts, the happy ones and the darker ones, because it is, by its very design, private. Sure, one can lock oneself in a bedroom to think, but social convention dictates that someone eventually may knock. Cup of tea? What's for lunch? Where are my socks? 
but only a true sociopath, a true busybody, would knock on the door of an occupied bathroom. A lockdown bathroom was an especially unsociable, quiet space, the apex of the already prevalent solitude, the most distant one could be in an already lonely apartment, a lonely city. It offered a deeper kind of retreat, a moment away from my telephone and its endless news updates, a bunker shielding the sirens echoing in through the open kitchen window, a pause from having to communicate with others, no Zoom, no likes, no text back for a while. It made me think of a moment from Miranda July's short story, Something That Needs Nothing. I politely excused myself. In the powdery warmth of the bathroom, I felt euphoric. Being alone suddenly felt wild. I locked the door and made a series of involuntary baroque gestures in the mirror. I waved manically at myself and contorted my face into hideous, unlovable expressions. I washed my hands as if they were children, cradling one and then the other. I was experiencing a paroxysm of selfhood. Bathrooms have, for me, like most women, been about other things. They have been about camaraderie and hijinks. They have been about the joy of a gaggle of friends crowded around a mirror in a nightclub restroom, slightly drunk, or giggling behind the cubicle door while taking turns to pee. Though men are supposedly blessed with freedom here, in other words, they can pee standing up, and although their bathrooms tend to do away with privacy thanks to a row of urinals, I always pity them for missing out on the truly convivial bathroom experience. They have likely never known what it is to look across the dinner table at a friend and suggest going to the loo. A code for a debrief, a chat, a delightful bitching session, a sordid rumour shared, a thought unloaded as hands are washed and lipstick reapplied. I am a dedicated swimmer, so bathrooms have also meant communal changing, a sea of curves and patches of hair angled away. They have meant warming up, they have meant hot feet against cool tiles in the summer, on holiday, Sand from someone else's costume already lining the tub, a glass of wine by the sink, various bikinis on the floor. They have been spaces to comfort friends, to regroup and to call someone from a night out when the alcohol hits and the loneliness strikes to tell them that you miss them. But now I see that the true joy of the bathroom is the quietness captured by Tebold. It is the quietness whether one is at peace or searching. Happiness can be a side product, but the real gift is the chance to reckon with oneself. It can result in the paroxysm of selfhood, as July describes, or the sensation of reuniting with one's mind and body can creep slowly, enveloping like warm water filling up from the tap as you lie waiting. The very purpose of a bathroom is transformation, dirty to clean, bursting to relieved, dressed to naked, to dressed again, one thing to another. Sometimes I enter my bathroom in the morning, hair like stig of the dump, face pillow marked, eyes gunky, and emerge spotless, made up, presentable, palatable, ready to go somewhere. I am altered. Other times no one but me notices the shift. I enter searching and leave something else entirely. Toes and fingers wrinkled, skin sometimes still slightly wet. And that was Lou Stoppard and her ode to a bath. Gillian, I can hear you. <laughs> Do you spend a lot of time splishing and splotting at the oh moment? Oh my God, I adored that piece. I loved reading it, but I loved listening to it because I have to say, my 
one of my great luxuries is a bath. You know, I have my candles. I have my bubble baths. I have the bubbles, the candles. And I get so upset if I go to a hotel and there is just one massive shower because it's just, it's just my sanity. It is my little private sanctuary. The moment of panic when you enter a hotel room and realise there's no bath. Totally. (laughs) And you can just see at so many hotels, they think, oh, well, no one takes baths nowadays, especially in North America. Let's make use of this space and make it in this whopper duper shower. Oh, but I just get heartbroken when I don't see a bath. Marcello, do you sympathise with us here? (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel that bathing is a kind of escapism, especially at the moment? Yes, of course. And especially, I think, like exotic baths. I think my most exotic bath was uh, like in the neighbourhoods of Rome, cold January. And a friend of mine brought us with her car to like a field. There were many cars. And behind those Italian cars were like holes with hot, bubbly, smelling water. (laughs) And all the Italians sitting in it. And I thought, no, I don't go there. (laughs) Then I tried and I must say it was just heaven. And actually, on the back of that conversation, for the next issue of Confect, we have a reporter stomping around the Tuscan hills and then um, hiking, really, and then popping into some of these ancient spa thermal waters that have been used since Roman times. And then on off, it has to be said, to a very beautiful, newly restored hotel. (laughs) Bathing in that context, it's like being on the moon, these sulfuric baths. If you can bear the smell of sulfur, it has to be said. Well, it is amazing, I think, uh, having baths outside as well. By day or by night, hot or by cold, there is something that just, it just ups the ante to have an outdoor bath. I completely agree, Gillian. Nothing beats an alfresco wallow. Well, I'll leave you in that fog of geothermal steam to bid you goodbye. Thanks to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak for keeping me company. You can buy issue one of Confect now from all good newsstands and confectmagazine.com. While you're on our website, why not sign up to our weekly newsletter, Confect Compact, for interviews, fashion tips, wine recommendations and recipes. Confect Corner was produced by Paige Reynolds, Holly Fisher and Carlotto Ribello and was edited by Sam Howard. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>